We are not heroes, nor are we villains. Neither kings nor magicians, but we can tell you their stories. We are the Lore Keepers, and we welcome you to Halloween. Welcome to Halloween. You are listening to Lore Keepers, a lore-building podcast where we talk about eons of history, heroes, and villains, and the forces that whirl about it all. I'm Carter. And I'm Frank. Whether you're interested in the stories, looking for inspiration in your own world-building, or perhaps you want to participate, we've got something for you. This week we're talking about bards, bard colleges, and just generally bardic things. So, Frank... Can you tell us a little something about bards? Yeah, well, I think as a good preamble, it would be good to, to point out that a bard is... When we think of a bard in our world, it's a... When we think Maybe we think of Shakespeare, we think of a person trouncing around in fluffy clothing that is, is just poofing out at the collars and whatnot and playing a lute or a lyre. And to some extent, you might find bards that are definitely like that, but it more... It's it's more a shorthand for a performer, a person who um, they might be a musician. They might actually have nothing to do with music. They might do poetry or prose or something like that. But typically, um, there's kind of there's kind of a division of there's a division between one type of bard and another type of bard in Helme, and uh, it, it's really a question of those who perform with magic and those who do not perform with magic. What do you mean? Well, so. In the world of Halame, when you have the nine flow, uh, you have the building blocks of reality at your fingertips in terms of, of being able to reach out with artistic license. So when you think about, who is it who talked about the music of the spheres? Was that Ptolemy? Uh, there's a lot of people that talked about it back back in the day. Yeah, well, the, whoever created that college where they it was sort of like this cult of geometry, which is a cool freaking idea, uh, They they had this idea this this belief this understanding that there is uh, a connection between octaves and resonant frequencies and the music of the spheres you know looking out at the bodies uh the celestial bodies that floated out in the whatever you call that dome that people used to think that all the stars and planets lived on that they saw it as this sort of beautiful dance um and in a similar way when it comes to the bards of halume they are able to reach into the very nature of reality itself and use that as the music that they then play or, or, or reach into on in stories. But part of it is, honestly, I think, I think that's kind of where the question comes in then, is what does it look like for a bard to cast with magic um, when it comes to this stuff? So, for instance, like on one hand, I can picture a a uh, storyteller who is is literally reading these stories uh, from scrolls and that's how they cast their spells is somehow like reaching into the the past itself and and pulling out that as a form of magic um to kind of enact like almost you think about parables you know you think about aesop's fables and like how each one has sort of a moral of a story you know that there might be a similar 
response to the world around you and by reading these stories you can cast spells you know or or maybe you have another situation where a bard is able to capture the sound of the area around them and and orchestrate it like a conductor stuff like that so like the thing is, is there's of, like disney's fantasia yeah yeah that's totally what i have in mind when i'm thinking when i when i have that thought of like uh mickey mouse conducting with his giant robes uh you know and the the the, the brooms all doing his bidding and stuff like that because he found that sorcerer's hat i dig it so but but that's the thing is is a lot of this is a blank slate and i think there's a lot of opportunity for us to kind of discover the place of bards and discover their 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 context their place in uh in halame so um for instance yeah, I guess I guess this would be a good place to start is what is that difference between how do you think that's seen by by culture and by peoples like that you have some who are magicians and then others who aren't? Do you, do you think that some cultures have like a difference in the terming the word that they use to describe those people? Oh, absolutely. And I think maybe it is that in some cultures there just aren't one of the types, right? How do you mean? Like oh like like maybe Ooh, like in some some countries or, or in cultures, like being a bard that can't cast magic is like outlawed on some level. Well, it's just like, why would anyone want to see it when they can go to see Magic Bard 4000, who's way better? Is that like, that's is that the sequel to Andre 3000? Magic Bard 4000? No, that's a, I mean, that's a good point. The thing is, and so I think here's the hitch is. And we can play with this some, but I wonder if it the, the one of the major differences is availability. So casters are not super uncommon. In a small village, you will you will find at least one person who is able to, to access extremely low levels of magic using just, you know, one of the nine flows of, of energy, the abstracts, which as a reference, uh, the abstracts are just the nine forces that magic is sourced from. So, so honestly, that might actually mean that those peoples would be enough. It'd be enough that you could have a bard for every small town or whatever if every magic caster became a bard. But that's the thing, is I don't think that every magic caster does become a bard. And if you have just some shitty inn at a crossroads and a few ho- hovels that have been built up around it because people tend to do trade there or whatever, why would a magician want to perform there? You know, why would somebody who's able to to conduct the very nature of reality itself want to perform in that dingy bar? Yet they still need customers. You know, they still need somebody to sing body tales. So this, so I I like elves, right? That's a thing people know about me. <laughs> I feel and, like at this point we're starting to really establish that truth. Yes, and so I'm imagining in like the highest elven custom for bard stuff would be like both of these things to perfection right we see you know the beautiful Mm -hmm. elven maiden on like a harp playing it but as she's playing it right magic is being cast by her while she's playing the instrument as any other person would yeah i definitely and i definitely see that i and so i think that's the difference there is that we do on this one end of the spectrum have these people that entrance and enrapture with their music. And I think they're literally on some level casting charm spells that other people are like willingly subjecting themselves to, you know, that's kind of the idea is it's almost like this, it's almost like a club drug, you know, it's like you, you, you and all of your friends get together and get entranced and go into a totally zoned in mode where you're just sucked in completely by the the magic and lose yourself to to it. 
And I think what really excites me about this is that there's, you know, that is absolutely not restricted just to music. But I guess the thing is, is what other types of, I guess when we talk about bars, we just talk about the arts. Like, do we see this in theater as well? Are people perform, casting magic to perform theater? Or is, is oh, yeah, magic I'm simply like... used to supplant theater? Like, instead of sets and things, you have, you know, illusions. Well, I think there's illusions and sets, right? They go hand in hand because you, you need to have props and you need to have, you know, be able to interact with the sets in some extent. But sometimes you don't. What is there is that episode of Futurama? I don't know if you do you ever watch Futurama? I've seen a little bit. haven't seen a lot. OK, there's an episode where I can't remember what the instrument is called, but Fry is learning how to, to play this instrument that he's terrible at. But it's basically it allows you to create sort of a virtual reality or like these 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 images and pictures in addition to the music itself. Yeah. And if you play it well enough, it's an extremely hard instrument to learn, but if you can do it well enough, you can basically create entire orchestral pieces and musicals and operatics all from this one instrument. So basically, I mean, the, 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 the story there is just like he... His hands weren't good enough, so he made a deal with the devil and uh, the robot devil and got the robot devil's hands, and his hands were really, really good or something, and so then he was able to actually play it well. But the moral of this story is basically just that that's a really cool image to me of a person who's playing uh, a lyre or a flute or something like that, and in the process of playing it, they are simultaneously weaving this magical story into place so you might have an entire three-act play that is all strung up and done by one bard or maybe you know uh, like a, a troop of them yeah and that sounds really cool that sounds really freaking sweet absolutely and i mean this is you know what you can do with magic right we of course we see the regular bards with the regular sets and they're much more common right than we this mm-hmm. magical counterpart but the magical counterpart is so much more impressive right yeah and okay and now something so something we haven't really talked on much oh no i think we'll wait on that but you you brought up an interesting point you were you were talking about the elven elven lass uh, elva playing a a a harp yep yeah it makes me think i i'm i'm imagining how the different races view bards differently because we know first of all there are bardic colleges that people go to so they might you know, explore a different aspect. You know, maybe one of them goes to the storytelling, another goes to conducting. Uh, but there's also, there's, there's, gotta, there's actually a lot of other colleges more than just those. Like there's ones that basically teach you how to be an adventurer or another that teaches you how to do like espionage or there's there's plenty of different colleges. What do you think the difference is in, in the way that the different races view like, how does a dwarven bard differ from as a maybe maybe as a, like a typical statement of like the way that they teach or view in their culture versus like a dragonborn versus a gnome Whoa. versus an elf? Like, it's got to be extremely different from each other, especially considering something like elven culture is all about like the high form. Yeah, I mean, obviously we have different instruments going on here, right? Different styles. Maybe the dwarves like their drums, and the elves like their strings or woodwinds. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's that. How magical are the dwarves as a race? Uh, they are they are deeply magical, um, but it's it's the kind of magic that runs very deep in their blood. So they're it, honestly, there's actually there could be an argument made considering that they are uh, from the progenitor race that was 
basically taking care of the Erebor crystal, that they might be the most exposed to magic um, because they're the ones who are like closest associated. Um, but in short, I would say I don't think they're necessarily any more or less magical than other races. It just manifests differently. Yeah, so like could, you know, a dwarf have the same, you know, magical ability as an elf or a human? Uh, yeah, I would say absolutely. I think I think that the way it would manifest would be much more associated, though, with the world of Sadar itself and that lack of the Erebor crystal. Oh, you know what? That actually kind of poses an interesting question. We might have to put a pin in for later, but that there might be some lost affinity. You know what I mean? They might actually feel some emptiness because the crystal that that they you know protected was shattered at the core of the world which if you're curious as to what we're talking about you can check out episode one we talk about all of this stuff uh with the airborne crystal yeah definitely put a pin in yeah the long and the short of that is just that there was during the ash curse which was the event that caused the fall uh it was the cataclysm that broke the world in the same way that the earth has a has a like a as far as we know in a pure iron core at the center of the world, Sadar would has a crystalline core, and it's been shattered into many, many different pieces. But that was originally how magic got into the world. Yeah, but if you want to know that whole story, you know, see the first few episodes. Yeah, definitely check out episode one. But back on track with dwarves, I have an idea for like a dwarven instrument. It's really cool. Oh yeah, think think of like a xylophone, except it's made of rock, and there's like different types of rock with different hollowness Ooh. and like interesting yeah 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 and it creates different resonant frequencies based on like what this how thin the slices of the stone are and stuff especially because you could do it with like sedimentary rock where it's already you know you know cuts off in sheaths or like you know like like a pumice type stone which is you know very uh airy and has a lot of holes oh yeah where it's super light yeah Oh, that's and, really cool. and they have like different um sticks to like bang on them with that are different metals that do different like that that's a dwarven instrument right there mm-hmm. yeah i think that the dwarven schools of 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 bardic teaching are probably the most body that there's sort of this like celebration of uh because where, where i think they would have some crossover with with some of the gnomes or maybe the halflings, but I think halflings are much more, you know, they're, they're agrarian. They're all about like hearth and home. And so they're all, uh, you know, singing or telling tales of these, you know, these heroes of old the harmonica boys. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. They're, they're, they're telling the tales of heroes of old and stuff like that. Gnomes, I think are more about like the tricksters. They're telling the tales like coyote who always shows up in, you know, in, in native American mythology, who's, always outsmarting or tricking the gods or, you know, the creator God. And uh, I feel like they're more going to be telling stories that uh, represent kind of that sort of analog. Um, But I think for dwarves, they're the ones who are rowdy, singing songs that would make anybody blush. Uh, Yeah, I just feel like that totally would make sense in terms of fitting into like your dive bar atmosphere that that dwarves typically have. A nice dwarven band. Yeah, yes, exactly. They're, yeah... (laughs) They're, they're bar, uh, the Dwarven Bards are like the shitty School of Rock, uh, Jack Black kind of characters. <laughs> they're, you know, they're just playing in the worst, just grossest places. Poor dwarves. Although there are, there are of course, exceptions to this. Uh, I mean, especially considering that they're all about, arist- not aristocracy, um, mercantile... 
what's the word for it's like old money you have baronies i guess you know people who are so for instance in uh around the anchor point of of avum quintus um which is just the moment where in history where cultural uh, culture most resembles the 21st century there are examples of um the the college of ritzba which um uh ritzba is a kind of famous character who uh she is known for having been very heroic and having done some some stuff and she's dwarven and as a result she with her wealth that she gained from adventures of being this incredible bard uh has kind of created this college that she then patronizes and stuff um and 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 you know selects out talent also frank just as a side note idea for a gnomish instrument like that's something that like looks like like, like a big like contra bassoon looking thing wait what's and, a like, bassoon it, again it's just you know, one of the many reeded instruments that's pretty big it's yeah, got like I'm a gonna... weird spigot thing at the top yeah look look up an image because it's it basically it just looks kind of like a giant clarinet right yeah yeah, yeah except like it's that. got like the, this the the metal reed that sticks off of it yeah so think of that except a contra bassoon's bigger and think of like you blow air, air into it and it like compresses it and shoots out like steam and stuff and it's like really wait really that's what I imagine as a no mission. This looks thing. crazy. This is this is nuts. Uh, for exactly. those who are listening, a contra bassoon. It looks like a strange mix of a if you were to fold a super long clarinet on itself a few times and has this is bizarre. So yeah, imagine, okay. Imagine a gnome with that, except they blow into it, right? And it like super pressurizes it and shoots out like a bunch of like super high pitched noises. That's what I imagine a gnome instrument <laughs> looking like. Sounds excellent. I really am enjoying that image. There you go. Okay, so we've we've talked about kind of how how bards might be different from each other. I feel like okay, so there's definitely some famous bards. There's Ritzba, but there's there's also others. What are what are some of the other famous bards, and what makes them famous? Well, we have the humble bard. Okay, and who is the humble bard? Uh, no one really knows what his real name is. Also, he's been around for like several hundred years, so no one really knows if he's either an elf or a gnome, or he's like many people all writing under one name. Maybe an archfey that keeps on manifesting as different forms or something like that. Maybe, but all it's known is he does a lot of poetry and theater and songs, but no one's ever seen him perform or heard him play. He just writes. So what makes him famous? Is it the fact that his stuff is just really good? Yes, it's very good, and it's... Basically in every language. He translates everything. Hmm. So I'm trying to think of the... I'm, I'm actually now thinking about the practicalities of this. Do you think bards... God, and, and bard, saying bard is just such a broad statement because it covers basically... It just basically means entertainer. And so there's no way to really narrow that down. Minstrel? Gleeman? Yeah, I mean, there's like a million different words you can use for it. Uh, thespian, artisan. You know, like there's really... It just... So, because here's what I was, I was wondering. Does the Humble Bard publish their writings? Absolutely. Okay. So does that mean that there is a publisher out there, like a, a printing press that knows who this is? Uh, I feel like it's one of those things where it's just like, it's kind of open source. So like, anyone can print them. And the first kind of one who printed it might have some knowledge of who it was, and they probably became a huge kind of printing organization because of this, Mm. being the first one to see it. But it's known that the Humble Bard does not, doesn't care about money. Sure, they're more about just getting their words out into the world. Yeah. Is this, 
And so I'm kind of picturing the, like a, a book that would be like a, a compilation of poems and things that are that are attributed to the humble bard that people might have in their in their study or something like that. Maybe it might not be something that every family has a, a copy of. You know, we've we've talked before in uh, in previous episodes about uh, script and and the likelihood of publishing and stuff like that. But this doesn't seem like it would be that. It seems it seems like it's a little bit more highbrow than that. I mean, I I could I would imagine that um, Bard has written such a wide variety of things. He's you know such a he's almost a mythological figure. That's the strangest thing, right? Especially if he's been doing this for several hundred years. Yeah, and we, we you know we, you could go to you know a village like church and pick out like a couple of laced together with like um, leather ties, like parchment. Or like almost like tanned hide that's been like written on with like the Humblebard's work, or you could go to the you know the nicest Grand Noble's mansion and pick out like a beautiful illustrated tome with the same work. Hmm. And so, okay, and you're saying so it's it, I, I would say in general, there's probably an open source mentality about a lot of stuff, uh, especially because we've already as we already talked about, it seems like the only copywriting that exists is. Uh, libraries that protect um, their works from being seen outside of the library by just not letting them be outside the library, you know, being yeah. these sort of uh, safe, you know, like like bank vaults of, of, of books and things. And I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around this image of the Humble Bar just releasing this and making this open source to everybody. Uh, because unless they have a printing press, they have to be interacting with somebody. So is it like an elf that shows up to somebody's doorstep and says, hey, I have something from the Humble Bard, publish it, here's money to take care of the publishing of it. Like, how does that work? This is like, um, you know, the the owner of the publishing company, like, opens his door, and then there's like a manuscript on his doorstep, and he opens it, and it's like the Humble Bard on it, and then it's just got, you know incredibly good work okay so wait here's a question then so his this this uh publisher's impetus to print this is purely because it's attributed to the humble bard basically so then what stops somebody from trying to get their poems out there by just saying that they're the humble bard that's a good question and i kind of it, it kind of makes me wonder then if there's like if that becomes sort of a like this culture of, you know, young bards seeking to recognition by submitting pieces under the, the guise of the humble bard and then, you know, sort of having a pseudo like like a pseudonym that's underneath that or something like that. Like, OK, OK, here's the picture I'm trying. I, I'm thinking and this seems kind of fun and interesting to me. Maybe there is this like monthly or yearly release of publishings that some publishers might have and they release it out uh, in big cities or whatever and then people see all of these poems or pieces that have been created like serials you know kind of like dickens would do uh yeah and and then um as a result these things get published and they're all uh, attributed to the humble bard and so you get this like monthly magazine or something full of the humble bard's works um and then if a person who might be a patron really likes something maybe they go to the publisher and say hey so who actually submitted this because i would you know like to see i could totally see this sort of being like this ritual or kind of like playing this game uh between the the patron and the and the bards to sort of get this this blind patronage being sought because of based on the merit of your work 
Absolutely. And maybe that's inspired by, like you've been saying, the beginning of the humble bar. This is, I, I love this is very, oh, like maybe that was almost their intent all along or something like that. Maybe. We have no idea what the humble bar was thinking. Yeah, especially, and, and maybe it's at a point where, you know, after several hundred years, people aren't even sure if the humble bard actually exists or if it's just sort of this manifestation of, uh, you know, the, the the best works of all peoples that are attributed. And so, sort of, you know, like, you know, after after having these things dropped off at somebody's uh, doorstep, it, it's kind of like when people look at Shakespeare and say, well, was that one person or was that actually like seven or eight different, you know, writers that were all kind of clumping them together? Exactly. Oh, that is that is really dude. This is I I love how sneaky and fun that is, because then, yeah, after several hundred years, you know, it's like it's been a thousand years now and people are still releasing things that are attributed to the humble bard. Because here's the thing. I think between you and me and the audience, you know, uh, don't don't uh, this this stays just between us and 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 Carter audience. I think that the humble bard does actually exist. I think not only I, I think it's more fun that way. You know, I think that they they began life as, oh, here's something cool. Tell me what you think of this. I'm ready. A person was born, and whoever they are, they were attributed with being the humble bard. And they start, you know, releasing these writings. Something in their lore and legend is associated with the fact that, you know, oh, there always appears a different person. Maybe they were hiring, you know, a random different person each time to submit their stuff. Maybe they were a changeling that could shapeshift into different forms. Maybe they genuinely were like an archfey or something like that. It's not super relevant. What's important is I think at some point they actually, maybe they do die or they, they, they pass on. But as that's happening, these works of theirs are getting picked up. And this sort of this movement of the humble bard is lifted and turned into something public and something we know from previous episodes was something we talk about about Helome is that belief makes real that because something exists therefore a deitic version of it exists so with our episode on Exabon we mentioned about the fact that battlefields exist means that a god of the battlefields exists so on some level of of like presence it's sort of related to platonic forms, but uh, on some level, because something exists, therefore there is sort of an overarching power that is the manifestation of that thing's presence in the in the universe. I think the humble bard might have, whether it's intentional or unintentionally, immortalized themselves. They've ascended to godhood. They basically ascended to demigodhood because, uh, or or at least on, in undying nature, because. In some way, they created a movement that was so powerful that they actually that that other people now are actively supporting their existence through retelling their story and their lore and their legends and attributing works to their identity. And even if it's generally understood at some level that, you know, maybe they don't actually exist anymore or or, you know, maybe they never did exist. uh occasionally i think we see work still dropped off and maybe we don't see who drops them off you know in the insert in the camera shot but we see things being dropped off and whether you know they only exist for moments to to release these things and you know maybe they go back to the realm of of muse or maybe they do exist in in some way i i think that they continue to walk the world and and share these stories and so these days, it's much less likely that like uh, a work actually is from the humble bard. But 
there are those moments when you see something on the doorstep and you just know there's no way that an earthly, you know, that a worldly person, a mortal, could have written these things. Scanning canon, 100%. I love it. That is freaking cool. That is really cool. So that's the Humble Bard. <laughs> yeah, so that's, <laughs> so that's the Humble Bard. Um, okay, all right. So here's, here is something I did want to touch on. So we talked about uh, how magic manifests, and we kind of briefly poked at that. But I think there's really something there in terms of... So with the abstracts of the nine flow, the nine different forces that you know magic comes from, we have perfection, charity, ambition, creativity, truth, wisdom, joy, will, and peace. And each one of these has an impact. They have an, a, a presence in the world because of... Let me think about how to word this. I'd be very curious to see how different bards interface with the different nine flow. So something we've mentioned is that each person in the world of Halume has sort of a primary inclination towards one of the abstracts or the other. You know, one person might value creativity above all else, or another might value charity, you know, that the greatest good in life is to be good to others. You know, versus another person is believes that peace, finding peace in the world. And while all people probably generally agree that, you know, the majority of these things are good on some level, each person finds a different patronage or, or nesting in, in one, of the, uh, one of them. How do you think this manifests in the music and the style of different bards? This is really, this seems really interesting to me, this idea of compositions being based on these different flows and that there might be one primary, you know, quote unquote melody of an, an abstract, like they might be reaching into truth or ambition, you know, the ambition might have very vibrant music or the stories might be all about, you know, you know, seeking wealth and power or something like that. And, and another story might be, you know, but it might also have veins of peace or will in it. And I think that the more skilled bards have have more access to these. But I don't know. There's something about that image that really intrigues me. Yeah, I imagine that maybe you could look at it through the lens of a person listening to the music and seeing what part of their soul or what part of the abstracts that corresponds with them is aroused by the music. So you're saying, hmm, okay. So imagine you have a bard playing an instrument in a tavern, right? Sure. We've got a couple people here. We've got someone very in tune with peace, who's a very calm individual and is listening to this bard play on his harp and is really in tune with it and really enjoying it and feeling the peace. Uh -huh. Then we have another individual, very willful, very ambitious individual, right? Right. Who is who can hear the music and understand it's good, but it just doesn't correspond to them. They want something more upbeat. Mm. They need something with more passion. Sure. Just as much as, you know, you can drop a person who's into metalcore into a folk concert and they might, well, they might not actually see anything. It depends. Like, I, I, I don't know. I have a pretty varied music taste, um, but I definitely do like higher energy music. And so I could definitely see it being like, you know, yeah, you just you just don't have a, a taste for that. Interesting. So and that that's fine. So I wonder then. This is kind of cool. Then it means that different districts or different bars might become renowned for having different performances. And I think this is true for non magical bars as well. I mean, like that's just we're just talking about music style at that point. Um, you know, you go to this bar because you know, or tavern, or just even amphitheater or wherever they are playing. You know, because you expect to hear this sort of sound or experience this sort of thing. And that's probably different on different days of the week, too. So 
I mean, I, there's nothing super special in that, but I want to hear some joy and perfection in my music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. See how that manifests. But I think that's actually really interesting too, because then there is something, so something we haven't talked much about, but there are what's called racial tide pools. One of the major ways that people can, uh, uh, one of the major components of magic and how it actually breaks down is that people are making connections with other people. Uh, so when you cast a spell, you have a method, you have a conduit, and you also have a point of, of interaction. So I might be casting a spell on, you know, I guess I'm looking around my room and I see a pillow on my couch. I might be casting a spell on the pillow of the couch. So I'm making a connection with that pillow. God, that sounds ridiculous. Or I'm, you know, I am trying to change the fact that it's slightly dreary and rainy outside, so I might be making a connection with the sky. But beyond that, there's, so these racial tide pools, what they are is basically that all peoples that share a common ancestry, uh, and, and the closer to that ancestry, the, the stronger the, uh, the bind, but um, humans all have a same general experiential I don't know what you'd call it, but they basically, they share this, you know, an experience together. So, for instance, um, if you were to kill, you know, if we were to mass murder 10,000 humans all in one instant, all of humanity across the globe and across really all realms would feel that in some way. You know, it's sort of like uh, Obi-Wan, you know, talking about, you know, hearing the soul, souls of a lot of people suddenly silenced, right? So with that in mind, where I'm going with this is basically, I think, I wonder if there's a similar sort of bridging of a gap or something that happens when you have a bard that is singing in or in reaching into one of the abstracts that maybe that you don't connect by that same racial tide pool, but there's maybe this like nine flow that you share that. So because the nine flow sort of acts like meteorological climates, that flow over the world and you kind of reach out and can grasp one of those flows and weave it and and work with it. I could totally imagine other people who also feel peace or creativity reaching into that or, or feeling that being reached into and twisted and, and worked within their environment, you know, kind of turned and, and formed, turned into something. I almost think that there might be something really cool with the idea of you could almost have these one-sided performances where because some people's hearts are oriented in a certain way, they see this performance and the illusions that the bard is, 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 is playing out. And then some other people might not actually see it in the environment or they see it, but much more faintly or they don't connect to it. Then it would, then it would follow that the greatest bards of all time would be able to, I think, weave from all nine of the abstracts tell tales and stories that touch all nine of them because then it's it, it's like this universal symphony any person can listen to it or experience it and and have that same revelatory moment absolutely I, know, I think that's really cool like i love the idea of this amphitheater filled with people and each one is experiencing this sort of like cross across the abstracts and and seeing the, it's it's a sort of empathy where, you know, they are, are being taken out of their own selves and all part of, like, this unifying experience that all peoples are sharing. I think Muse maybe looks down really favorably on that. I mean, of course. Yeah. 
Well, that's something we've even mentioned, too, is the fact that Muse will manifest uh, behind a bard or, or in the presence of a bard who's playing excellently. And so rumors will go around that, oh, my gosh, this one performance, Muse actually showed up. And it happens maybe like once every uh, year or so in a region where, where they'll see that manifest. But I think she might be looking for um, or, or her, you know, her avatar is like looking for those performances, maybe even every night. Yeah. She kind of like visits the world and seeks out the bards who are playing these. I'm kind of rambling at this point. Um, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted specifically to explore. I just, there's just, I feel like there's a lot of buffet here that we could really pick from. It might be good to hone on one thing. Yeah, I'm not sure where to go from there. I suppose we could talk about the schools of uh, the colleges because we haven't really mentioned anything about that. Do you have any ideas for, like, any cool colleges? Because, I mean, I, I have, like, the stereotypical ones of, you know, you've got, you know, a, a Dwarven college is going to teach you maybe how to do things more traditionally following, you know, these tales that everybody's told since forever. Maybe an Elven college is going to teach things more in, like, sort of a high form. Yeah. I have an idea of a traveling college. Okay. It's basically kind of... Like, Romani-inspired, right? Sure, yeah. So basically, I imagine this, you know, group of, like, you know, crazy, colorful wagons, and all of them are performers. Some of them are older, some of them are younger. And they just go from town to town and play their music, and if anyone wants to come and join them and learn to play music, they can do it. Interesting. So it's definitely a carnival feel. Yeah, and it's a blend, right? Because they go everywhere. So it's a blend everywhere that people will let them. Okay, hold on, hold on. So I don't know if all colleges of these, uh, uh, of the, like the traveling college of bard, uh, bards is, are, are all the same, but I just got a really good feeling about this. Yeah. It could be a halfling college where, oh, I just, I had it and I lost it. Um, why was it halfling? Why was that important? Was it the harmonica? No, <laughs> no, um, no, but the, okay. So, so the idea of, of, of a traveling college, you know, you get this carnival set, set up where, and, and I think their, their idea of, of a bard is maybe more emergent and, and multifaceted than the traditional, you know, this isn't just, you know, thespians getting up on stage or whatever. This is knife jugglers and fire throwers. You know, you get your typical carnival stuff, right? Sure. Yeah. And so, you know, so so say they roll into your town and you're just like, really, you want to run away to the circus. You um, get excited and you join. Yeah, you decide that you 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 want to join the traveling college. I think they teach you. And I think this is where I was getting the halfling thing from is I don't think there's just one traveling college or I think that the capital T capital capital C traveling college is maybe an institution that has many different bodies. So like they all kind of convene and separate so maybe once a year once every 10 years or something all of the different traveling colleges come together for a sort of burning man situation 100 percent uh where they're where they're where they're you know sharing and and like living it up and i think that's maybe where the halfling thing comes from is i think it's maybe one family that are all related uh that kind of started the college and like bring others in and you know you don't have to be a halfling by any means to to, to, to join it's just those are the ones that kind of got it all, all up and running. And so you have all of these different colleges of traveling that are each doing different circuits around the world in different realms and different areas. And then once every, maybe it is once every 10 years, they all come, come together and congregate in some, in some location. I think it's different every year. Of course. 
And that's see, and that's just super fun because then it's like nobody knows where they're going to show up next, and so it's so it's like this mix of like the Olympics and Burning Man, where if if you want to get in on that and you want to see the greatest event of you know of the decade, the, the the different traveling colleges all coming together to do this like super carnival that's like city sized, then you just need to I think you need to be paying attention to to like the world. Yep, hundred percent. And and so then. And then rumors, yeah, rumors pop up of like, oh, here it's going to be, you know, in this, you know, this one town or in this area th- this year, uh, you know, and they just like, it seems like they're just deciding arbitrarily or whatever. But then everybody in the local area just flocks to them, like from countries abroad to see this. Absolutely. It's, it's the Olympics and Burning Man. <laughs> it's the Olympics of Burning Man. It's, ooh, maybe they even hold competitions. Sure. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe that's like one of the things is, is, is people will literally come from all around to try and outperform or, or, or like even do these like stage versus stage, you know, you have two stages across from each other and they do the, you know, yeah, do a sort of a, a, a musician's battle. You know, you have the, what is, you know, the devil and the fiddler or whatever, you know, that one down in Georgia. Yeah. Devil and down in Georgia. Uh, or, you know, yeah, it's just, I feel like there's some, some really fun stories that could be there. Um, especially when you have, if you have these traveling colleges, I did just wanted to point out because of the fact that halflings, uh, typically do have pretty agrarian quiet societies. You know, you think about like the hobbits, you know, where they're just kind of, they keep to themselves and they value, you know, proper English style livelihood of, you know, the, what do you call that? The the beautiful garden movement or whatever it's called. Uh, and it's like t- turn of the century is basically this idea that um, man curating gardens, man curating the landscape, landscape architecture uh, was almost like divine ordinance because it was seen as being reflective of the Garden of Eden. This idea that yeah, so so basically that truest the truest highest form of beauty was the kind of stuff where you'd create these experiences, these narratives of you'd walk through some lord's estates and experience one thing after another. And so, I mean, when the halflings are like that, when when their 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 society kind of reflects that or sees that as being a high good, um, I think that these traveling this traveling troop is kind of an outcast, a group of outcasts because they don't. You know, that's much more, you know, cut your teeth on the world sort of lifestyle. It's not something that it's it's definitely grittier. It's definitely going to be bodier than the the prim and proper of, of the halfling. So I, I feel like there's even a story there of, you know, they were a, a halfling family that got ousted. You know, when you look at the five meccas, maybe they were uh, there's one of the meccas is uh, is like these halfling homelands sort of. And, and I, I kind of imagine them being kicked out from there or that there was some feud. And so maybe, maybe that, Oh, okay. Here's the thing. What if the traveling college, they'll accept all halflings, especially except for one family and they won't even acknowledge their existence and they won't show up in their towns to like play and perform. Sure. Yeah. Whatever the family is that pissed them off. They've just been holding this grudge for like hundreds of years at this point. Absolutely. Okay, so we have a traveling college. Um, I think there's probably a college of espionage where, especially when you think about bardic uh, roles, you, you'd you have people in courts. I mean, well, I guess we haven't really even talked about courts and like what a bard would be in a court. I mean, it's pretty much what you'd expect, I think. You know, that's that's more following the frilly, you know, dancy, prancy, trancy 
folk that we see in, in, you know, in our world. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's something to that, uh, about what, the college of espionage, the college of secrets. Yeah. Like a college of, of whispers. I don't know. You can use charm and wit to influence the world. You know, you can be the silver tongue in the ear of the king. It's the Illuminati. I mean, honestly, there are cults that are of that level. Conspiracies definitely can be true in, in Helme, for sure. 100% we got the Bard Illuminati. So we haven't talked about how bards and the Fey interact, because the Fey are pretty crazy, and they like a good time, and so do bards. So what do you think? Yeah, I think there's something there. Um... Yeah, like there's a bards are always they they typically kind of go back to that feeling of the trickster or the the gnome with a twinkle in their eye, you know, the there's charmer. something Yeah, there's something yes, the charmer, the sneak, the uh there's something sort of uh very fey like in the way that they are. But their goal their goal is to entrance people. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. So I kind of wonder if there isn't some sort of lineage or or bestowment. Like maybe that's where this even this idea of of being bards or the tradition of bards comes from. It's from the alluvium somehow. So you're saying elves are the OG bards? Maybe, or maybe I'm, I'm kind of getting this picture in my head that okay, so we have the ash curse, right? And then the world is separated from uh, the alluvium and from you know the nine flow and all that stuff, right? All of that stuff gets disconnected. All the planes fall apart. And then eons later, tens and twenties uh, and, th- you know, many, many thousands of years later, things get reconnected. And I think that there's something in there when times are still kind of wild during Avum Tertius, as, as things are transferring back, uh, power is all over the place and it is high fantasy. It is, I mean, you know, things are crazy. It's sort of a time when the gods, maybe not gods walked the world, but maybe demigods uh, and the presence of of like incredibly powerful beings sort of threatened mortality and the mortal, the mortal world. And I feel like there's something in there that really rings true, maybe the larger than life aspect about how that might associate with bards and, 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 and the stories that they tell or the nature of what it means to be a bard. Do we have the College of the Wild? Maybe. Oh, well, we absolutely do now. Especially because it would be like, maybe they teach you how to draw energy from, like, draw energy as sound and light from from nearby sources and turn it into music. Also, maybe it's in the Feywild. Ooh, wait, so you're saying there's a college that you can only get to that's in the Alluvium? Yep. I really like this. I really like this. That's very good. Um, What is it like? Um, I think we have, like, a combination of random bards that got there through crazy hijinks, like satyrs, um, and maybe, like, a fae or two pops in to say hi every now and then. I can totally, so I'm starting to picture sort of this, uh, maybe not conflict, but this line of thinking where maybe it is generally understood and accepted by the world that, uh, the Fae are basically responsible for bards. And that maybe some people actually don't trust magical bards because they think that it's just kind of like, uh, you know, all bards are, you know, <laughs> just just the Fae, you know, doing, you know, they're just, they're just agents of the Fae trying to do things in our world, and I don't trust them. They're just here to make mischief and cause problems, right? 
and and others uh, look at the College of the Wild as saying this is the epitome. This is it. This is the number one college that all bards, the best bards, go to. Like you have to be picked out by a fae to go there. Yeah, and I think we have like there's like a mark that you get when you go there. Like maybe you have like green hair or like leaves sprout out of your tunic or something. Like, oh yeah, there's like some sort of okay yeah. And then I think here here's where I was going with this is I think that there's a a play there. Uh, not a theater piece. Uh, like there's there's an interplay between that and sort of these departures from that uh, that you might find in the materium in in on Sadar and stuff is um, you might have uh, colleges where you know you might have the College of Courts you know and they teach you how to become a court a court bard for for a, for a king or a queen or something like that and they kind of look down their nose at the wild and say, it's so barbaric. And like, we have since, you know, formalized and made proper this strange art that the, the, you know, yes, yes, the Fae maybe brought it forward, but we're the ones who made it legit, you know? And so they don't look necessarily with high praise at the, at the college of the wild because it's just too wild, you know, it's too liberal. They'd say the same thing about the traveling college, right? Right, exactly. I, I think that there's a definitely, a different, a differing approach to, you know, the maybe more liberal, more conservative side of, of what they think, you know, a bard can be. I, I, I think that this is especially true in the elven courts. You know, I think that the high elves might see bards as really just a manifestation of like the true form of, of reality, like the great dance, the, this idea that, you know, you go back to the harmony of the spheres and stuff, you know, they might approach music as this, idealized form or whatever whereas the forest elves or, or other you know wood elves or other others that are maybe much more in tune to the wild totally are on the other end of the spectrum with that yeah i mean the elves are super conservative about everything right right okay so we should probably wrap this up but i think before before we do i was just gonna say so i think because i never really finished that thought i wonder and i, I would say help me here because I, I feel like there's something here but i don't know what it is entirely yeah I think during Avum Tertius, there's, I mean, obviously music existed before, but I think there was something, I think something happened. Something like literally magical happened that changed the way that music was or changed the way that resonant frequencies were felt or something like that. Maybe it was almost like, I'm picturing in my mind a story of like, maybe the Alluvium did something horrible. It, it, it totally screwed up the world in a big bad way when everything kind of came back together. And some of the archfey of you know these powerful figures from the alluvium took pity on mortals and they said oh my gosh like we totally screwed up your world crap sorry about that tell you what here's a promise we will raise up this person and teach them how to do music or we will raise these bards and so i think maybe there's these like legendary the first bards or you know the first four or five bards or something like that and um and they were taught by this archfey who you know, was the manifestation of art itself or something like that, you know, sort of a subdivision of muse or, or something like that. And, you know, kind of exposed them and, 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 and taught them how to, to truly perform in this different way. And then also changed reality in some small measure to give them, you know, some source of hope in, in, in difficult times. What if the Illuvium attempted to have the Nine Flow go through the Illuvium and then Oh, oh, and I think I think it maybe succeeded for a while or something. Like or maybe, I fe- 
one of the flows got diverted and we have like creativity like sneaks in the alluvium and then sticks back in Sonar. That's Oh yes, they they like coveted the flow of creativity, and so maybe one of the tricksters of the uh, like one of the archfey of you know perhaps the lodging of Twilight, which we'll get to talking about one day, like reached in and somehow were were able to influence that flow to pull it through the alluvium. I wonder. I almost think it might be interesting to say that to this day it is that way. Or that there's some imprinting that was left on the flow that not taint might be the wrong word, but like tinted it in a certain way that says that creativity flows through the alluvium or or makes a stop there or something on the way to Sadar. Yeah, the spire of creativity is some crazy place. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Well, we actually know what the spire of creativity is. Oh, you're right. We know it's... we know who initially was responsible for it. It's the gnomes. That's right. It's Tiri and Tiri Row Rockfoot Administeri and the Angels. Oh my gosh. Okay. There's something there for sure. Holy shit. Like, I can't even imagine what that story is. But there for sure is something about that thing getting reconnected, the alluvium seeing it, one of the trickster gods, like, want, or trickster archfey, like, wanting to connect to it or, like, pulling it or whatever. And then totally some sort of interaction between the Angels, Gnomes, and the Archfey. There is something there for sure. Oh, and let's throw the yeah. vampires back in for good measure. Holy of course, shit. Yeah. Oh my god. I unfortunately I think we're gonna have to come back to that one later because uh we're about it for time. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about or wrap up before we uh call it? I think I think we covered a lot of crap. Yeah, we did. I think we're good. I man, I can't wait to like write stories about the humble bard or like write that article, uh, because that for sure is going up on the world anvil. Of course, you know, the uh, Wanville's so good. We got so much stuff on there now. Yeah, it's actually, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really excited about its current state. Well, uh, okay. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this exploration into the lands of Sadar and the realms beyond, and perhaps found some good material to add to your own stories. Uh, you can reach us at the Lorekeepers. That is, as, that is literally at the Lorekeepers, as in Twitter. And please follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, didn't we get on SoundCloud? Yeah, so we are now officially on SoundCloud. We are also on AnyPod, which means that if you tell uh, if you tell your Alexa to say, "Hey Alexa, I think it's add lore, uh, play play me the Lorekeepers podcast," it will find it for you and play it. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty freaking cool. Spotify still AFK. They are they are very slow to respond. Yeah, but if you like us, give us a five star rating. It helps a lot. We're super thankful. And if you can even do something better than that, spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Tell your grandma. <laughs> tell your dog. Just tell everybody. Yeah, and so as an update, we are still working on our album artwork. Uh, probably going to be updating that sometime soon. But much more excited uh, is that. For the last uh, several weeks, Carter and I have been um, working on things for our World Anvil. You can find the link to that either through our website, which uh, we really should talk about more, uh, thelorekeepers.com. We have an official website now, which is pretty freaking great. Um, and if you, so yeah, in the top right-hand corner of the website, you'll, there's a little option to say Visit World. Or you can find the hyperlink below in, uh, in the podcast dis- uh, description. Um, it's a kind of long... Uh, URL, so I'm not bo- bothering to put it in here. But we've got 
some really cool articles on there, and we're adding to them every day. Uh, we have articles here. Let's just pull it up right now. So, for instance, we've got uh, we've got a really cool map um, where uh, I have finally, finally placed the majority of the locations in short descriptions. So uh, there's little dots, and you can you can you can click on them and basically see what's there. The five meccas are there. We have articles about some of the major cities. We have an article about Roark, which uh, has its own um, area. We have uh, ones about areas. We have ones about um, organizations. We have yeah. There's all there's just a lot. So uh, make sure to check it out, and um, we think you'll really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, um, thanks to Josh Silker and his composition of Land of Heroes, which is the Lorekeeper's theme. And uh, thanks to you for listening. So until next time, don't forget there are always more tales to tell. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.